Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory this morning. You're the one that deserves all our praise. So this morning we say uh, thank you. Thank you for uh, revealing yourself to us. And we just praise you this morning. We worship you. We came to worship you this morning. So we just, uh, at this point, the song said it all, Lord. We just, we give you all the glory. We give you all the praise for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what a great service so far, huh? Having uh, all those children up here and... Uh, was wonderful to uh, witness and experience that our church is not growing old. Um, there was an awful lot of young babies up here. So some young people are having some children because when you get to be my age, it's too late. And so, and, uh, and, and so I appreciate uh, Matt and Laura uh, walking them through the class that they do, and it's a, a super valuable thing to our church. And um, I want to thank all of you for making that commitment to pray on behalf of those children. To every parent that was here, for every godparent, for every aunt and uncle, uh, I tell young couples when they have babies, you just got the biggest prayer project you'll ever have in your entire life. Because I don't care how old they get. I got one that's approaching 40. She's not quite there. She's a couple years away. I, I do understand that. But um, I still pray for her. My son, I still pray for him. I, now they give me grandkids. I got to keep praying for them. There's other prayer projects. So lots of things to go to the Lord with. I am continuing the series that we have going on why church? Why church? I believe we're doing about six or eight weeks on why church. And so as we laid this out, um, this one came up and he said, uh, I'd like for you to do why we attend church. Why attend church? And so there's a classic passage there in Hebrews 10, uh, 19 through 25, and we will be doing some emphasis on uh, 24 and 25. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that, um, why, would we, why would we say why attend church to you who are attending church? You're already here, right? So some of this is going to feel like I'm preaching at the choir, and I am. Um, but uh, hopefully this will impact your life to where you tell others about it, and um, we'll get more people that will want to come back to church. Um, it is a epidemic uh, problem, attendance in church in North America. Um, the numbers are continually going down. It's like the church has plateaued in North America, and now it's reducing. And um, the why of that, uh, your guess is as good as mine. I think I have some ideas. But uh, in the last five or six years, uh, churches across the United States and even up into Canada have saw a reduction of 2% per year of people attending. So this would be people that claim to know Jesus Christ, uh, be a member of churches, and now are no longer going to church. And so, um, why? That's a good question, why? And why aren't they in church? I don't really know the answer to that completely. Um, but we are in a decline. And so, uh, it's why we're speaking on why do you attend church? Why should you attend church? What's the Bible say about it? This passage speaks of it pretty clearly. Let's read it. Um, is it behind me? I don't know if they have the passage up. If not, it's Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. I'm reading from an NASB version, so um, 
hopefully uh, that will line up with your version. <laughs> Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's a couple things here. Um, there's two spots here where we're going to talk about since we have is a phrase that's used in the passage. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place. Verses 19 and 20. Where do we get our confidence from? Well, it's clear, isn't it? Therefore, brethren, so he's talking to those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ because he's calling them brethren. He does not call you brethren if you say, I don't believe in Jesus. You're not a brother and you're not a sister if you aren't in the family of God. By acknowledging that Christ died for your sins and accepting that as a, as a, uh, as a trust issue, putting your full trust in that, that makes you a part of God's family. So then you're called brethren. Okay? The, the term brethren is uh, indicative of men and women. It's a neutered kind of a combination there. So it means either. All right, so he doesn't say brother and sister, but he does say brethren, and it does, you ladies are included in that, want you to know. So where do we get the confidence to enter the holy place? Well, we get the confidence through the blood of Jesus. Verse 19, is that what it says? That's what it says. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, so by his blood I can go into the holy place. All right, now he's, Remember, now, we're just coming off. I mean, I didn't say this earlier. Let me say it to you. In Hebrews, the first coming right out of the uh, chapters headed from this is the ministry of Christ as a priesthood, his priestly ministry that he has to us. Okay? So now the author is relating this back to an Old Testament time where you couldn't get to the Holy of Holies as an individual. You couldn't get there. You had to have a priest go there for you. And he went into the holy place, which other priests could go to the holy place. But they couldn't get into the holy of holy place. That was only one priest. He went in once a year, and he had to be very clean. Because if he went in there unclean, he dropped dead. Because you cannot have uncleanliness next to godliness. God will not put up with it. He won't tolerate it. So that's kind of the pathway this is a metaphorical thing that this author is doing to describe what christ has done now christ is now in the holy of holies and you have access because he's in you now you're in him you're in the holy of holies that's the confidence that i have this morning that i can go right into god's presence and ask for anything as he says in chapter four i can go to the holy of holies to the throne of god and ask for anything that i want based on his will. Amen? That's the confidence that you have. Not anything you've done. Trust me. 
I don't care how good you are. You're probably a hundred times better than me, but you can't get there without the blood of Christ. All right? So that's the confidence I have. And now he describes, in the next verse, he says, uh, in verse 20, he says, by a new and living way which he, Jesus Christ, inaugurated for us through the veil, because see, there was a veil there, that is his flesh. Now you're saying, how can his flesh be a veil? Well, he's relating it to what happened to the veil when Christ died on the cross. In the Holy of Holies, there was a veil, they say it was six inches thick. The fabric was across so that you couldn't get into the Holy of Holies. You couldn't accidentally look in because if you accidentally looked in, you died. You were only there as the high priest. So you would go in, and guess what they did? They tied a rope around your waist. I don't want this job. I didn't want this job, I'm telling you. They tie a rope around your waist, and at the bottom of your robe, they would put a bell. As long as the bell was ringing, they'd leave the rope alone. But if you went in there, and you were unclean in any way, I mean, you had to be clean. They, you had to bathe yourself. You There's a certain pattern of how you had to do that. So that was the old way. But if you were unclean, you'd drop dead, and the bell would quit ringing. They drag you out. Get the next guy. Give him a bath. Start all over. Amen? But he had to go in there because he was going to sprinkle blood on that altar before the Lord that was going to give remission of sins, not permanently, but for another year. But now there's a new way, a living way. The veil is his flesh. And what happened was, when he died on the cross, his body was mangled and torn for your sake. The flesh became torn, and guess what happened to the veil? Six inches thick. Not that's not six inches. Six inches thick. Ripped in half. Torn from the top to the bottom. Torn in half. That's what happened. Who do you think tore the veil? God himself. He said, I'm satisfied with the sacrifice. You can now come into my presence through the blood of Jesus Christ. You come with confidence. I don't come, oh, no, I come boldly before the throne. I get to get in the Holy of Holies boldly this morning. Verse 21, we have another sense we have. See, we have this. That's why I can say I'm confident in it and know I have it. Positionally, I'm already there with him. You are too if you've placed faith in him. Maybe you don't know that today, but positionally, I'm at his right hand with him. I'm there. I'm there. I have his righteousness. I can be in his presence. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, we now have a priest. Guess where Jesus Christ is at? He's your priest. Guess where he's sitting? At the right hand of the Father. He's in the house. He's in the house, people. He hasn't forgot you. He's right at the right hand of God. And he's, you know what it says in Scripture? He's ever interceding for you. Right now, when we had that prayer time for these mothers and their dads and the grandparents and the aunts and uncles, Jesus Christ was interceding on your behalf. I don't know, I get kind of excited about that stuff. 
I don't mean to yell at you, but when I get excited about stuff, my voice level kind of goes up. But those two cents we have are critical. Because I have a high priest, because of the blood of Christ, I can come confidently. Because I know that he's at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding on my behalf, he is my priest. He's the ultimate high priest. See, the Israelites needed a priest to go in for them. And that was a man. And he took a sacrifice that had to be renewed all the time. Christ went as a man, but as God, and he sacrificed, and we don't need another sacrifice. He is the ultimate sacrifice. My confidence level soars when I hear that, when I read that. Then the author takes us through some extra, because you have confidence, because you have a high priest, what's verse 22 say? Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What do you do when you have this confidence? Do you shy away? No, 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 no. I draw near. I draw near. I get close to him with a sincere heart. Don't come if your heart's not true. Don't, just don't waste your time. But come if you're sure. Come if you know him. You can be assured that you know him. He says in 1 John, he says, these things I write you about Christ that you may know that you're saved. Not guessing, not do I have the confidence. No, I have it already. It's been secured. It's been secured for you if you placed your faith in him. So this exhortation, draw near. There's four phrases in this passage. Here's two of them. Let's look at them. First two phrases I already talked about. A sincere heart and full assurance speak of the open trust in God's promises. God has made promises that I can just say, I just trust it. I trust it. I don't even have to understand it to trust it. Why? Because I trust the one who made the promise. God is trustworthy. There's a little book you all need to read. It's called You Can Trust God. 21 pages. It'll take you about 30 minutes to read the whole thing, and it will make your heart explode within you when you say, I can trust him. You can trust him this morning. If you're here without Jesus Christ, you can trust that the work he did on the cross was enough. It satisfied the Father. It, I said that, let's say that again. The work he did on the cross satisfied the Father. Oh, that was still pretty weak. All right. I'll let you get away with it, though. So we can have full assurance. This indicates a confident reliance on God, and it gives you a much higher quality of faith. You can have faith that doesn't have an assurance. I say that's not faith. That's fake. Faith in God gives assurance. Faith in God gives you assurance. You can know that by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. There's your hope. The second two phrases balance one another, both speaking of cleansing, but focusing on two different parts. One, respectively, the heart. He says, the heart is sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. See, before you met Jesus, you had an evil conscience. 
All right, three people agree. Before you met Jesus, you had an evil consciousness. Whether you agree or not, it's true. But when you met him, what happened? There was a change that took place. By what? By the blood of Jesus Christ. See, they had to sprinkle blood on the altar to get forgiveness. Christ just immersed you in his blood and called it good. You're in him now. Huh? Amen. So that's the inward part had to be clean. And you are clean from that. That's the inward, the heart. And the body has to be clean also, and that's the outward. And this is just a continuing metaphorical phraseology of what he's already talked about as far as the altar and the holy of holies and that whole combination of things. In the second exhortation he does is in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope with trembling. No, no, it doesn't say that, does it? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why do you not waver? For we know he who promised is faithful. I don't have to waver when I'm confident. Look, if you needed a million dollars today and I wrote you a check for that, you should waver a little bit. There'd be a little trembling in your body going, yeah, I don't know, this check's probably not good. Larry's got a good heart, he'd love to do it, but I don't think this check is any good. The point is, is when God makes a promise and says you can have hope in him, he can cash the check. His account's never, never, never uh, overdrawn. He can give you whatever you need, and his, his power never diminishes. This is an endless supply of uh, power that he has. But he gives us hope. So if I could say this, if you're forsaking the assembling of the saints together, what's your confession of hope like? Say, well, I, I believe that God died for me and that I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of the king, but I want to go to church. Oh, okay, that's interesting. We're going to talk about that too. Just remember this, that the hope that we're talking about is the hope because God is faithful to the promise. The hope that you have is the hope that you have because God is the one who made the promise. Say it again. The hope that you have is the hope that you have because God made the promise. Not because I'm up here telling you that you got hope. No, 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 because the Word of God says you got hope. There's some hope. So, a couple exhortations there. So because of the hope is so firmly founded in God, it can and must be without wavering. There's no, oh, I don't know, and there's no trembling. There's none of that. Matter of fact, it says the term, I looked it up, the Greek term for this without wavering is a term that says not leaning or wobbling. Not leaning or wobbling. I'm straight up in it. It's for sure. It's stable. There's no trim. The earthquakes can come. It's stable. Because God is stable. But the author put it here because he apparently thought it'd be a problem with the believers. Obviously, these readers and us too at times. So that leads me to my third exhortation. Let me put these on. The third exhortation is the one that we derive our title from. 
Why should we attend church? And I believe that what we've just talked about is why we should attend church. How do you draw near to the Lord? You know what? How do you, re- how do you see Jesus today? How do you see Jesus today? Do you see him? Do you look up in the clouds and there's Jesus? Nope. If you do, I, we got some stuff to talk about. Um, but how you see Jesus today is in the lives of others. It's by seeing another believer that's following after Christ. You see Jesus. You see Jesus' love. You see a lot of things in people when they're following after him. That's how I see him today. Now, he can clearly make himself evident in Scripture. That's another way you see Christ. But actually walking around, physically touching it, I can actually say, I could touch Matt Nicosia and watch how he's following the Lord and say, I see there. How, how do you love Jesus? How do you show love for Jesus today? Loving his people. Right? We're going to get there. The previous two exhortations have some application toward why we assemble, but this exhortation is more specific to the title that we have behind us or that, that was up behind me earlier. Let's read it together again. Verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I read that with some emphasis, and I'll explain why. So the exhortation, the third one, calls us, we have this responsibility to one another. And it, it says to stimulate, and I wrote in parentheses there as I wrote it down here, that stimulate is provoke. That's the word. It means to provoke someone. And some of you are saying, well, you're provoking me right now. <laughs> and that's good. I'm glad I'm provoking you. Provoke um, is not the one that we had this child celebration. This is working out great today, by the way, for this child celebration. We had this thing where there's a passage in Scripture that says, you fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's not the kind of provoke we're talking about. It's the same provoke, but in a positive way instead of a negative way. You can provoke people the wrong way, and that will not end up very good for you or them, typically. Like, don't poke the bear. You heard that say, don't provoke the bear. That's a good way to get swatted. Okay, so in this particular instance, so it's a good thing. It's, it's a positive thing. Provoke one another to love and good deeds. It's to excite one or to call them to activity for a worthy purpose. Hmm. Consider one another. You have to consider each other. It says that first. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I said this in first service. I got saved when I was five. Um, my dad was preaching. He was talking about hell. Sounded like a place I didn't want to go to. Uh, told me of a, a way I could avoid it, and that was Jesus Christ. And by accepting Christ, um, I could be in heaven instead of hell. And at that point in my life, at five, I didn't quite understand really who Jesus was yet, and I'm still learning who Jesus is. But um, that sounded like a good deal to sign up for Jesus rather than go to hell. So I'm like, I want to, that's, that's me. I want to get that. 
okay? That's probably what a lot of you did too. And so, um, but in, in that process, I'm like, um, I probably wasn't really very good at stimulating anyone to love or, to pro or provoking them to good deeds. But you know what? I was the beneficiary of people that were being stimulated to love and good deeds. Because that church had a bunch of little old ladies and a bunch of younger and middle-aged people in it that were loving on me. That made me want to come back to church because I knew they were loving on me. I knew they cared about me. They were already doing good deeds. They were teaching me in Sunday school. They were doing things that they were, they had been, someone had stimulated them to love and good deeds. And, and this kind of love here that we're talking about, that provoked you to love, I'm going to just stay with you until you start loving someone. That's the kind of thing it is. Let me show you how to do it. And I was telling them earlier, I used to come to church for a long, probably longer than I should have. And I came in the door going, what can they do for me? I'm going to go to church. Phil's going to preach. I hope he has something for me. See, I wasn't yet to the point of being stimulated to love and good deeds. It was all about me. It was all about me. What do they got for me? Uh, they better uh, turn the air down. They better turn the volume up. They better, oh my goodness, come on. That's not stimulating you to love and good deeds. We're trying to stimulate you to love and good deeds. I am now and have been for a while. I come to church saying, what can I do for others? How can I love on you? How can I stimulate you? How can I provoke you in a, in a good way to do good deeds? Yeah, that's, it, it's in the passage. You did see that, right? Did y'all read it? I read it to you. Sometimes you've got to read it yourself before it really sticks. Let's look at it one more time. And let us consider. Let, let us consider. Uh, let's, let's take a look. Let's, how can I do this? Let me consider how to stimulate you, how to provoke you and one another to love and good deeds. And then we're going to add to it. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. So if I can stimulate you to love and good deeds, I don't think the other part happens. I think if I can stimulate you, if we can provoke each other to do, to love each other, to love one another, and consider each other, and love one another, and do good deeds, you're going to want to be here. Here's an interesting thing. If I'm loving correctly, that means I have your best interest in mind. You follow that? I have what's best in mind for you, not what's best for me. I'm provoking myself even to do love and good deeds. I'm provoking you to do the same. Why? Why would I provoke you to love and good deeds? Because I love you. Because I love you. I want you to do what God wants you to do. This is God saying this. Right? We don't know who the author of Hebrews was. We don't. It's, it's never identified. I don't get it. But I was talking to a man the, uh, about three months ago, and he was teaching Hebrews. And he says, Larry, I have figured out who wrote Hebrews. Well, man, I was very interested. I'm like, wow, really? Uh, how, did, how did you, I humored him. How did you arrive at that? He goes, well, I think God wrote it. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't argue with that, could I? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I think you're right. And so um, he did write it. And so he's telling us 
here to provoke each other, or, and that is truly the word. The word is, it's, uh, I forget what the Greek is, proxomalavology or something. I can't say it. I'd have to have Matthew come up and say it for you. But it's provoke. It's poke the bear. Poke him. Why aren't you loving? Why are you coming week after week going, well, nobody loves me. Where are you commanded to be loved? Where is it commanded that you be loved? Show me. Somebody tell me. It's not in there. It commands you to love. Provoke them to love one another. Provoke them to good deeds. Stimulate them. Trying to stimulate you right now. Will you do, will you love each other? What's a way you can love someone? Huh? Good words. Encourage them. Encourage them. You know one of the ones the ways I love to, for you to show me that you love me is when you tell me you're praying for me. When you tell me you're praying for me, you become my best friend. I got a lot of best friends because there's a lot of you praying for me. There's a lot of you praying right now that I'll finish soon. But, I mean, that is a way you can show someone that you love them. It's to say, you know what, I'm going to pray for you, brother. You know, if you get that reputation of being a person that prays for people, you won't have to go find people to pray for. They come and find you. And I would encourage you, if they come to find you, you pray for them on the spot. Just pray for them right then. Because otherwise, if you're like me, my mind gets where I forget things. So stimulate them to love and good works. What is the one character that if you said about a Christian, that this would be the top character they love? Have you ever met somebody and you've known them just a very brief time and you just know they're saved? Because they're so kind. Because they love on people. It becomes so evident. You're like, there's something different about them. They love unconditionally. They just love people. It's hard for us to love unconditionally. Very difficult. But it is the one character... Because who are you supposed to be like? Christ. You're supposed to be like Christ. What was Christ like? A very loving person. A very loving God. He's still loving. To the point that he would die on your behalf. He who knew no sin became sin for only the good people. No. For those with an evil conscience that we talked about earlier. And then beautiful works is the, or good works is the beautiful actions. Love is the fountain of all beautiful deeds. You notice he had love first and then encouraged them to do good deeds. Because when you love people, you'll do things for them that you normally wouldn't do. When you got a family barbecue planned and you get a call from somebody that says, hey man, my marriage is falling apart, can you come see us? No, I'm pretty busy right now. I've got a barbecue going. You know, I've got my own family to take care of. No, no, see, so you've got to seek after the other. I want to put you first. I want to put you up there where I'm like, no, 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 you are important to us. You are important to me as a believer in Christ. You're a brother. You're a brother or a sister in Christ. So I provoke you. I stimulate you. I'm trying to stimulate you right now to do good work, to love one another. How good would this church be if you really loved each other? 
What would be the one thing that people would say about us if they saw that greeting time that we had earlier? They might say, you know what? These people really care about each other. They really do like each other. Yeah, it's one of the best witnessing tools there is in the world is for you to love each other. Because it shows. It shows through. Even if you're not even trying to do it, it shows. Just love one another. And then the good deeds will come out of that love. I, I used the illustration earlier about, I, I think the classic example or sample or whatever you want to call it of, a, of someone who loves is, um, and it, it's apropos with the child celebration, is moms. Moms love kids unconditionally. They do. My, my mom, I, I could do the wrong thing and my mom would never stop loving me. That's how God loves you. But I think sometimes that moms have the, the, the love for me to look at in today's world that I think comes closest to what God's love is, is looking at moms. Because moms, they love you in spite of all your stupidity. Who's the one that gets up with you in the middle of the night when you're sick? Sometimes dads are, but most of the time it's the moms. The generation I came from was always the moms. Okay? So when I'm up sick in the middle of the night, you know, putting your face where a face should not go in that toilet bowl, <laughs> who was there with a washcloth? Who was there loving on me? What advantage was there for her? What was the advantage for her? What was she getting out of it? Nothing. She just was loving me. She was taking care of me. You know, sometimes we get calls as pastors, and we go and we take care of people. There's nothing in it for us. That's because we love you. We, we love the people, the sheep that God's put in our pasture. We're trying to take care of you. We're trying to love on you. You stimulate us to good works. And then the latter part of this, yeah, the latter part of this is um, seen in the latter part of the verse here. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. Some are staying out of church. Some aren't coming. I, I can't figure that out. Except to say there must be something better that they're doing. Huh? Is there anything better than being here with your brothers and sisters? There really isn't. There's nothing better than what we did when we were worshiping together. There's nothing better than hearing the word of God and having it stimulate you and provoke you to love and good deeds. Nothing better than that. Nothing. My grandfather used to say, I'd rather be here with you saints than the best hospital in town. Which is comical, but it's true. I'd rather be here than anywhere else. There's not a football game out there that I'm interested in. There's not a baseball game. There's nothing on TV that I'm interested in as much as being here. And so I challenge you. Husbands, why aren't you showing up week after week? Why is it that they say now that the average regular attender in church is coming twice a month. That's considered an average attender. That's a regular attender. 
That's the average, twice a month. Now, I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here. I get that. But I might have caught you on one of your two weeks. <laughs> right? Yeah, you're laughing because that might be true, huh? Don't forsake the assembling of the saints together, as is the habit of some. So if you are in that habit, change your habit. Change it. Why don't we forsake the assembling? Why don't we do it? We, we, you know what? We use that one to build uh, numbers sometimes. Not we, but people in church do. Oh, don't forsake the assembling of the saints together. And then they'll stop right there. As is the habit of some. But if you read on, we have already know that we're supposed to stimulate each other. Okay? And then don't forsake the assembling. And as you read on, but encouraging one another. Wow. So I'm not supposed to forsake the assembling of the saints together because I'm supposed to come here to encourage you. You're supposed to come to encourage me. When we meet and get together, there's supposed to be encouragement. Now, what's one of the ways you could encourage someone? Bring this book with you. Pray with them. Use the Word of God to encourage their heart. So that means, you know what that means? You got to read the Word of God. You got to get the book in you so you can give something out. If you're running on empty, you're empty. You got nothing. But boy, if you would just, if you would spend 10 minutes a day, just do 10 minutes a day, and just read any, just read any of the books in there. It's all profitable. It's all profitable. Read something. And not the Reader's Digest. They even have that Reader's Digest? No, they probably don't even have it anymore. Showed how old I am. But encouraging one another. We get together so we can be encouraged. Guess what he's warning against? If you don't show up in church, if you quit coming, I can almost guarantee you unequivocally that you are going to fall off in your Christian walk. He's warning them about apostasy in the book. He's saying, if you're not following after the ways that you believed in Christ, if you start staying away, you're going to get over here, you're going to get isolated, and guess what? Satan is a lion roaring about, looking for someone to devour. And if you ever watch the Animal Kingdom shows with lions, they like to hunt the weak, afflicted, and they like to get you separated from the crowd. There's a reason he used a lion. Because you know why? Because you have a bunch of lamb chops, that's why. <laughs> you ever see a lion go after lamb chops? I've watched him feed them over at the San Francisco Zoo. It's pretty ugly. But he can get you isolated, and by yourself, you're an easy target. You're an easy victim. So you need to be together. He, the lions don't just attack the whole crowd. They pick somebody out. And if you get away from your strength, you're an easy meal. And you're going to fall off. You're going to fall off. I don't care. I don't know anybody that quit going to church that's doing better than when they were going. Because it's biblical. It's what God said to do. Right? And did, did I not read it to you? And then he says this, And all the more as you see the day, the day drawing near. What day is he talking about? 
It isn't just every day. He's talking about the day. It's the coming of Christ. All the more as you see the world about to end. All the more. All the more. So why do we do church? It's commanded of us. But why do we do church? So we might encourage one another. So we might stimulate one another. That we might draw near. That we might take this wonderful hope that we have with confidence. We draw near. I need you. You know what? I need you to be there for me when I lose that confidence. I need someone to pray for me when I don't know what to pray anymore. I've prayed for certain things so long, I'm not sure I know what to say anymore. So I need help. You need help. We need each other. We're a body. We're a body made up of many parts. Who's the head? Christ. He needs you to be part of the body so he can be the head. Yeah, it sounds weird when I say he needs you. But he saved you to do a work. He saved you to serve. He saved you to stimulate you to good works. If you're not doing anything in the church, why not? You're not fulfilled if you're not doing anything in the church. If you're not serving him, what are you doing? You come to the church, we'll give you somewhere to serve. I'm just telling you, you're missing out if you're not serving. You're just missing out. Serving is part of the change agent that God does to help move you along in your Christian life. The New Testament repeatedly emphasizes the importance of local assemblies. In fact, it was a pattern of Paul's ministry to establish local congregations everywhere he went. Why? Because he knew that people needed each other. You can't live in isolation. You know, solitary confinement is a punishment because you cannot live by yourself. You ever thought of that? Why do they put you in a prison cell all by yourself when you've done something wrong? Not just to get you away from everybody. That's part of it. But the other part is you really think about things and you start to go crazy if you're by yourself for very long. Yeah. There's a reason that you, you need, we need each other. We're social creatures. Even the, most, even the least social one of you here is still social. You may not be a talker. You know, ain't my family if you are. But you may not be a big talker, but you still need each other. We need relationships. And we need to stimulate one another. So, let me end with this. I'm five minutes past. Sorry, people. Acts 2.42 shows us what the early church did when they met together. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Christians came together. They still come together. We come together to learn God's word and the implications of it in our lives. That's one of the reasons you come. And then to join, to carry out acts of love and service to one another, as we just indicated. And then to commemorate the Lord's death. We do communion together. And we're supposed to. That's one of the jobs of the church. Active local church membership is imperative to living a life without compromise. It is only through the ministry of the local church that a believer can receive the kind of teaching, accountability, 
and encouragement that's necessary for him to stand firm in his Christian walk. God has ordained. See, this is God's plan, the church. The church is his plan. Not a bunch of men that got together and said, let's build a big building and put hundreds of people in it so they'll pay our salaries. No. No. This is God's plan. And we're doing it different than we did it in Acts. But guess what? They met in big temples back then too. God has ordained that the church provide the kind of environment where an uncompromising life for him can thrive. That's why we attend church. Father, I thank you this morning for the truth of your scriptures. Um, what a great thing it is that you reveal these things to us and let us know how to stimulate and that we're supposed to love one another and stimulate one another and uh, we are drawing near to you and we have a hope and we have faith and we have an assurance of that faith and we have a great high priest that's right at your right hand now interceding on our behalf. All these truths and then we come to church that we might encourage one another and stimulate each other and man, Lord, I think you said to do this because you knew we would need that. We would need one another. And I want to thank you that I didn't get saved and then became isolated but that I got a much bigger family than I had before. So we love you today. May we be a church that honors the truth of this scripture. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.